It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That quote is straight out of the Bible from Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. And you know, that's a very positive statement, isn't it? I mean, who doesn't want to be free? And this is the United States, after all. We love freedom around here. We fought a revolution to gain our freedom. But what is the actual meaning of Galatians 5, 1? What are we talking about when we say we have freedom in Christ? For the next few weeks, that's exactly what we're going to figure out. Today is the beginning of a series that will take us through the book of Galatians. And actually, we shouldn't think of Galatians as a book because it's a letter. It's a personal message from the Apostle Paul to a group of churches in a place called Galatia. And as we're about to see, this letter was written with a lot of passion, even anger. Because Paul has a strong sense of urgency here. He's, he's writing this letter because people in the Galatian churches have embraced a distorted version of the Christian faith. And according to Paul, they weren't following real Christianity anymore. It was a cheap imitation. So we're about to listen in on a very old controversy. But let me tell you, Galatians is completely relevant for us today. Because in our time, it's still very easy to drift away from what God established as true Christianity. Now, the Bible explains it very clearly. The problem is us. We humans have a tendency to tweak the message of Jesus in order to match what we think it should be. But it doesn't take long before we've adopted something very different than what God intended. It's kind of like this. Say you're on a journey. And you've set your course for a particular destination, and you're looking forward to arriving at that destination. Now, we understand that if you go about 90 degrees off course, you will end up in a very, very different place than where you wanted to go. But what if you're off just by one degree? One degree. Is that really a big deal? I mean, you're still headed in the same general direction. Well, here's what happens. If you're off course by just one degree, by the time you travel 100 yards, you'll be 5.2 feet away from your goal. That may not seem like much, but what if if it's a long journey? What if if you're trying to take a trip around the world starting from where you sit right now and you want to circle the globe? Well, if you do that and your direction is off by just one degree, you'll end up 435 miles off course by the time you should be back here. And then what if you were on a flight to the moon? If you're going to the moon and you're one degree off, you're going to be off course by more than 4,000 miles. At that point, we're not talking about a minor issue, are we? And whether we like it or not, that's how it works with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't tweak it or change it even a little because if we do that, we end up in a very different destination. So Paul's letter to the Galatians brings us back into alignment. And listen, this is something we all need. I know I need this. We're all like a car that doesn't want to stay aligned. You ever driven a car like that? It drives you crazy, doesn't it? But this is us. This is how we are. All of us have our own peculiar tendencies, certain ways that we're tempted to distort the gospel of Jesus. Now, let me pause for a second and say, 
I know that we have people here on Sundays who have not yet made a decision to follow Jesus. And if that's you, if you're still exploring Christianity, let me just say, you are very welcome at Plum Creek, and we're glad that you're here. And I believe this series will be helpful to you, too. Because if you're trying to figure out where you stand with Christianity, you want to make sure you're dealing with the authentic message of Jesus, not some distortion. But now, for all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus... We need to admit, we do have this tendency to get out of alignment, and we need to go to Scripture on a regular basis to get some course correction. For example, some of us may tend to drift to the left. You know what I mean by that? That's when we become tolerant of things that God calls sin. But certain sections of the New Testament are written to correct that particular error, like Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. Now, that church had some people engaging in serious sexual sin. In fact, one guy had a sexual relationship with his father's wife. Not good. But the Corinthian church, they were just looking the other way. They weren't doing anything to confront it. And Paul was like, nah, you can't just tolerate that behavior in the body of Christ. You guys need to deal with this. So some of us would tend to drift to the left like the Corinthians, but many Christians have a different problem. Many of us have a tendency to drift to the right, and we become stricter than God is. We've got a list of man-made rules and expectations, and, and we're like, hey, if you want to be considered a true Christian, you better look at our list of standards, and you better measure up. This was the problem in the Galatian churches. The Galatians had drifted to the right, and a certain group of people started to add all these extra requirements for everyone in the church, and before long, following Jesus did not feel like freedom anymore. It felt like slavery. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So are we getting the message? A follower of Christ should not feel weighed down or chained like a slave. We should feel a real sense of freedom. But then how does that work? Does freedom mean we can do whatever we want? We've already said, no, that's not the case. But then what are we free to do? Is there a special list of rules that apply to us that are as different than the rules that don't apply to us? And if there is a list like that and we still have a set of rules to follow, are Christians truly free? These are interesting questions. And in order to deal with them, we need to have one clear answer to one big overarching question. And that question is, what is the true gospel of Jesus? We're going to see that Galatians gives an amazing answer to that question. So if you have a Bible with you, open up to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to take it from the top and start with verse 1. Like all of Paul's letters, he begins with an introduction. So follow along with me. Galatians 1, 1. Paul, an apostle, Sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. So Paul begins with a formula that you saw a lot in those days. Letters would often begin with an introduction. The writer would say, this is who I am and this is who I'm writing to. 
And did you notice, Paul introduces himself in kind of a unique way, doesn't he? First, he calls himself an apostle. Now, in a general sense, the word apostle means someone who is sent on a mission. And in the early church, there were lots of people like that. It was a common thing for someone to be sent out as a missionary or an evangelist. But Paul wasn't using the word apostle in that general sense. Paul is saying that he is a special apostle, right up there with Peter and John and the original core group of Jesus' disciples. Paul says that he was handpicked by Jesus himself and sent out on a very special mission. And his mission was to take Christianity from the Jewish world out into the world of the Gentiles. God chose Paul to help the church go global. So with this introduction, Paul says, I'm an apostle, but I'm a special apostle with authority from God himself. He's presenting his credentials. And why is he doing that? I believe it's because certain people are trying to undermine his authority, maybe talking a little smack about him. But who are these people that Paul's writing to? Who are the Galatians? Where is this place? Fortunately, I have a map that can help us. Now, this map, you can see that Galatia sits on a, uh, an area of land that we call Turkey today. It's on the Mediterranean Sea. It's right where Europe meets the Middle East. And you can see on this map that Galatia was a region that had several different towns and cities. Paul visited this area on his very first missionary journey, and he planted churches in towns like Derby, Iconium, Lystra, and Antioch and Pisidia. Now, Paul would often stay at a new church just long enough to get them started and establish a few leaders, and, and then he would move on. But he never forgot about those churches that he left behind. In fact, he cared about them very, very much. That's why he had a habit of writing letters to follow up with them. Paul wrote to encourage those churches and give them some instruction from a distance. And that's what you see in letters like Ephesians and Philippians and several others. And with many of those letters, Paul starts out with personal greetings. And he often sounds very warm and even affectionate. He'll say things like, every time I think about you, I thank God for you. Or he'll say, hey, I'm hearing great things about your faith in Jesus, about your love for God and your love for people. Great job, guys. But those are the other letters. Galatians really doesn't have that tone. Now, in the first five verses, he gives that introduction followed by a general greeting. But then we get to verse 6. In verse 6, Paul drops the formalities and he gets straight to the point. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. You can tell, can't you? Uh, Paul just couldn't hold back anymore. He, he made it five verses and then he unleashed. Somehow a report had gotten to him. He heard what was happening in the Galatian churches and it wasn't good. They had gotten off course. They turned to a distorted version of Christianity. They had perverted the true gospel of Jesus into something unrecognizable. Now, before we do anything else, we have to deal with the word gospel here. I've been throwing it around a little bit this morning, and it appears three times in just two verses. But what is the meaning of the word gospel? 
If we want to understand how the Galatians were getting it wrong, we should start with a description of what it's supposed to look like. And first of all, many of you know that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. And our English word, gospel, it comes from the Greek word, euangelion. And this word euangelion means good tidings or good news. So the, the, gospel, the word gospel, it literally means good news. And keep that in the back of your mind because it's going to be important later. But when Paul uses the word gospel here, he's not talking about generic good news. He's referring specifically to the news about Jesus. It's the message that he's been preaching in places like Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi. So what was that message? Well, here's a good summary. The gospel is the good news that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, died in our place so that we could be saved by God's grace, through faith in Christ, instead of trying to be saved by our own works, which is hopeless. That's it. That's the message of the gospel. That's the good news that we still share today. It's the message that we preach up here every single week. This message is literally the only hope for humanity. Outside of the gospel, outside of Jesus, none of us has any way to get to God. You will never have the promise of eternal life or the hope of heaven unless you find that hope through the gospel. And because we do talk about this every single week, it's easy to forget that the gospel is completely unique. It's a priceless treasure. It has no comparison. One of my prayers as a preacher is that God will help us remember just how precious the gospel is. So let's take a second. And compare the good news of Jesus to every other belief system in the world. See, most people operate on a system that you could call legalism. And the basic idea of legalism is that you have some standard, some set of rules, some set of expectations, and it's up to you to try to measure up to that standard. Now, often legalism shows up in the form of religion. And with religious legalism... People are working hard to be accepted by God, however they understand and define God. And the only way to win that acceptance is through your performance, by trying to be good enough. Now, from one religion to another, the end goal can look a little different, but it's always about being good enough to make the cut. You can look at major world religions like Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, or even twisted versions of Christianity, and this is how they work. Under legalism, We act, and then God responds. God is watching us. He's grading us. And if you're above a certain line, you might just be accepted. But do you see the problem with this? The problem is no human being can measure up to God's perfect standard. And the truth is no human being can even measure up to a human standard. You can make up your own standard. You won't live up to it. Perfect example, New Year's resolutions. Why do people make the same resolutions year after year and keep failing year after year? It's because none of us can perform perfectly in every area of our lives 100% of the time. But if that's true, and it definitely is, where does legalism leave us? Well, it leaves us in a constant state of striving with no hope of a positive result. 
Either we see how badly we're failing and and we get depressed and really down on ourselves, or we fool ourselves into thinking that we're doing better than we really are. Either way, you can't win with legalism. There's no freedom in that. But the gospel is not based on legalism. The gospel is based on grace. It flips the sequence of events. It's not that we act and God responds. It's that God acts and we respond. Do you see how huge that difference is? With legalism, the burden is on you. It's on your shoulders to win God's love or to prove that you're good enough. But with grace, God has already chosen to love you despite the fact that you're not good enough. And he's already done something to make it possible for you to be good enough. Jesus died on the cross. He took your place and he took my place. He endured the punishment that you and I deserve because of our sin. And through that sacrifice, God offers grace and forgiveness to anyone and everyone. It's a gift. It's an amazing gift. The gospel is good news. And here's the thing about news. News is something that's already happened, right? A reporter doesn't make the news. A reporter just announces the news. So we are announcing the fact that God has offered his grace to all of us through Jesus. That's good news. And once we hear it, God looks for us to respond to him by accepting that gift. It's like Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. We read this earlier. He says, it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's a gift. We don't earn God's approval. We don't win God's approval by our good works. It only comes through grace. And when you begin a relationship with Jesus, you you experience this dramatic change. You go from 0% forgiven to 100% forgiven. It's like being released from prison. You don't have to serve that sentence anymore. You've been set free. But there's a problem that many people have today, and it's the same problem the Galatians had. After God gives us our freedom, many of us drift to the right, and we fall right back into legalism. And we think, okay, I was saved by grace, and that's a good thing, but now it's up to me to keep my salvation based on my performance. It's a mindset that says, we're saved by grace, but we're kept by works. But do you remember how angry Paul sounds in this letter? He's angry because he sees what's happening in Galatia, and they're losing exactly what makes the gospel special and unique. They're reverting to a system where we act, and then God responds based on our performance. They're flipping the order. They're going back to legalism. And Paul was like, no, no, no. If you do that, you lose everything. Let's go back to Galatians 1 and read a few more verses. Paul says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Some translations say, let them be eternally condemned. Pretty strong wording here. And then Paul repeats himself. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. You've probably heard the saying that you have to pick your battles. Clearly, Paul believes this is a battle worth fighting. 
This is a hill that he's willing to die on. He says, I don't care who's preaching some perverted form of the gospel. Even if it's me, even if it's an angel from heaven, I would literally ask God to curse anyone who destroys the beauty of this good news. And remember, Paul's not talking about a hypothetical situation here. He's talking about what's already happening. There are real people who are preaching a different gospel. And make no mistake, Paul's harsh words in this passage are directed at those individuals. He's calling them out in a dramatic way. So let's look at the other side of the story. Who was throwing the Galatians into confusion and why? Well, to understand this situation, uh, you, you have to know a little about the church in the first century. And in the earliest days, the church was primarily made up of people who were Jewish. And when these Jewish Christians had come to Christ, they didn't believe they were leaving Judaism behind. They just saw themselves as Jews who accepted Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. But like I said earlier, Paul was sent on a mission to take Christianity to the Gentiles, beyond the Jewish world. And by the time Paul is writing this letter, there were about as many non-Jews in Christianity as Jews. And at that point, you have two very different cultures colliding. And it makes sense that you would see some tension. See, for centuries, the people of Israel had been set apart by God. They followed all these special practices that were commanded in the Old Testament. One example is that all Jewish boys had to be circumcised. The Jews also had lots of dietary restrictions. They couldn't eat things like bacon because a lot of foods were considered unclean. They were also very strict about the Sabbath day. There were lots of things you weren't allowed to do on that day. But what happens when Gentiles or non-Jews join this Christian movement that had a lot of Jewish people in it? Do, do, the, do the new converts need to follow the rules that applied to the Jews? Well, that is the question, isn't it? And some of the Jewish Christians believe that these Gentiles should obey all of the Old Testament rules if they really want to become a part of God's family. In Galatia, these Jewish Christians said, yeah, if an adult male wants to join the church but he hasn't been circumcised, he's going to have to take care of that first. That's a non-negotiable. Well, Paul's upset at what's happening, but what should have happened here? Many of those Jewish ceremonial laws applied only to the people of Israel. They were never meant to be a requirement for Gentiles coming to Christ. And Paul says, when you add these extra requirements to the gospel, you're trading grace for legalism. Now, in our time, uh, most of us aren't tempted to go back into the Old Testament and, and pull out these ancient Levitical laws, but the truth is, many of us are very attracted to legalism. But why is that? What's the appeal? Well, Kyle Eidelman has a good answer. If you're in a life group, you're going to hear Kyle teach through Galatians because our life groups are coordinating with this series on Sunday mornings. But Kyle gives two reasons why we're attracted to legalism. Number one, legalism offers a system of measurement. And sometimes we just want things to be very clear, don't we? Uh, we want to know exactly who makes the cut and who doesn't. So we set up our own guidelines. And we may not even mention them out loud. We might just look at someone and think, yeah, I, I don't consider that person a real Christian. 
But ironically, we often give ourselves a pass because we think our sins aren't as bad as their sins. And that's the other reason we're drawn to this system. Legalism offers a feeling of superiority. We like it when we can say, well, sure, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm better than him or her. But over the next few weeks, we're going to see why legalism is so dangerous. It cannot take you to a good place. It may seem like you're off course just a degree or two, but legalism will lead you far from your destination. It won't earn you approval from God. It doesn't bring real life change. Legalism leaves you completely hopeless. But Paul finishes this chapter by using his own story as an example. Paul points to his testimony as proof of the power of the gospel, the true gospel. In verse 13, he tells the Galatians, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. You may know what Paul was like in those early days back when he was called Saul. He was on the all-star team for legalism. He was working his way up the ladder of Jewish religious circles, and he saw Christianity as a threat to his religion. He persecuted Christians. He wanted them killed. But then in verse 15, Paul says, God set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Paul was a terrible sinner. He had done some awful things, but God loved him, even though he didn't deserve it. And God had a plan for him from the beginning. The turning point came when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And Paul encountered the grace of God, and his life was forever changed. From that point on, he was a totally different person, not by his own power, not by his own effort, but by the power of the gospel. And at the end of Galatians 1, he says, I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. He says, those churches down south, they didn't know me by sight. They only knew my reputation. They only heard the report the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. What happened to Paul is one of the most dramatic reversals in history. He had been the biggest enemy of Christianity, but he became the most influential missionary in the history of the Christian church. But it wasn't legalism that changed him. It was Jesus. It was the gospel. And you know, the same is true for us today. When we begin a true life-changing relationship with Jesus, we change. We're transformed, and our lives become proof of the power of the gospel. As we read more of Paul's letter to the Galatians, we'll see how this power can transform our lives. But I want to close today with a reminder that this life change does not happen by our own effort. Last summer, there was a story in the news that gripped the world. Twelve boys from a soccer team in Thailand and their coach were all trapped in a flooded cave. They were four miles deep, and rescue seemed almost impossible. If those boys had tried to save themselves by swimming through those narrow, flooded passageways, there's no question, they all would have drowned. It's kind of like the situation that we've all been in because of our sin. If we try to save ourselves, if we try to win God's approval, there is no hope for us. 
But remember what happened to those boys last summer? A worldwide rescue effort took place. More than 10,000 people got involved, including over 100 Navy SEAL divers from different countries. Those divers literally risked their lives to save those boys. In fact, one of them did die while he was on a mission to deliver oxygen to the back of the cave. And that's another thing that's similar to our situation, isn't it? Jesus saw that we were in trouble, and he put his life on the line. He literally gave up his life, sacrificed his life so that we could be saved. But there's something specific about this rescue that I wanted to share here. It's some new information that I just learned recently. At the time of the rescue, the parents of those boys did not get the full story. Neither did the rest of the world. The parents were told that the divers would help the boys swim to safety. But the reality is, that never would have worked. There's no way a child with no diving experience could navigate that obstacle course of the flooded caves. Here's what actually happened. Each boy was given a sedative and knocked out completely, totally unconscious. Then, an air tank was strapped to his chest, and he was fitted with a face mask. Then his wrists were tied with cable ties. His hands were secured behind his back. Now, why did they go to those extreme measures? It's because those boys would never be able to swim out. They had to be carried out. If, if one of them woke up during that journey and tried to rip off that face mask, he would endanger both his life and the life of the person trying to save him. You see, for those boys to be rescued, they had to completely give up trying to save themselves. They had to place their survival entirely in the hands of their rescuers. Friends, we're in exactly the same boat. We can't earn our salvation. We can't maintain our salvation. Our only hope to be saved, to be rescued, is through the grace that we find in Jesus. We all have a desperate need to be rescued by God, and not just when we first come to Christ. We need him every day. We need him to rescue us from fear, from hopelessness, from addiction, from pride. We need him to rescue us from ourselves. So, today and in the coming days, let's focus on the good news of Jesus. Let's be realigned to God's truth. And let's remember, only the true gospel of Jesus has the power to save us, to transform us, and to bring us real freedom. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the good news. I thank you that it's not on us. We know we would be hopeless if it was on us to save ourselves, to be good enough, to, to earn our way to get to you. So Lord, there is such a relief in the good news. But we also have this tendency to drift one way or the other way. So, Lord, for your church here, will you realign us consistently today and in the future? Lord, help us to 
not only accept, but to live out this good news in its purest form so that we're not giving anyone the wrong impression, so that we're representing you well. And Lord, if there is anyone here who has not yet accepted your amazing gift of grace, I pray that you'll speak to that person by your spirit right now. I pray that you will lead them to accept you and that they'll respond boldly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.